This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the June 30th edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan. I'm joined by Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Brick Walker, and Dr. Mark Katz. Uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. We have a, a, a really full house of expertise here as we uh, dive into the, uh, the news topics. Uh, we're going to introduce uh, uh, Breck Walker, who was with us uh, and is now joining us as, as a regular member of our news uh, review, and also uh, talk with Dr. Mark Katz, who's here as a guest uh, co-host. Uh, but I also wanted to update people on Ambassador Dick Bowers. We haven't uh, mentioned uh, what he's done. And before I introduce our other two guests, let me uh, remind everybody that uh, Ambassador Bowers served as the U.S. Ambassador in Bolivia from 1991 through 1994. And during that time, the American Embassy in Bolivia uh, was the largest and most complex embassy in South America. He grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, attended the University of California, Berkeley. Dick, what, what is uh, the Berkeley, is that the, the Bears, right? Yeah, the Golden Bears. Golden Bears. I didn't just attend, Pat, I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> just for the record. All right, he entered the uh, Foreign Service in 1967. From 61 to 64, he served in the US Army as a Russian linguist in West Berlin one of those spies in a bunker somewhere at the height of the Cold War. As a member of the U.S. Diplomatic Corps, Ambassador Bauer served in the U.S. embassies in Panama, Poland, Singapore, Germany, and Bolivia. He retired from the Foreign Service in 1995. He's been a board member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council since 2012. Dr. Breck Walker, who's uh, the newest addition to our news review uh, team here, received his PhD in diplomatic history from Vanderbilt University in 2007. His dissertation was on the foreign policy of the Carter administration. He taught at uh, Sewanee, the University of the South, on the University of Virginia's Semester at Sea program. And he's worked as a historian at the Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, in researching a, a book on Pentagon cyber policy. Prior to becoming a history professor, Rick worked for 20 years as an investment banker. Uh, the last 10 as co-head of the corporate finance group at J.C. Bradford and Company in Nashville. Uh, he also serves on the board of the World Affairs Council. Today we welcome Dr. Mark Katz, professor of government and politics at George Mason University in Northern Virginia. He writes on Russian foreign policy, the international relations of the Middle East, transnational revolutionary movements, and other subjects. During 2017, he was a visiting scholar, first at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, then at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. 2018, he was a Fulbright scholar at the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, in London, and then the 2018 Sir William Luce Fellow at Durham University in the UK, where I had the opportunity to see him uh, lecture one fine English day. Uh, in February 2019, he was appointed a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And you can find links to all of his many articles on our website, 
and at uh, www.marknkatz.com. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, thanks for joining us on the News Review. Great to be here. Thanks. Before we get uh, going, let me mention that July is membership month at the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We invite you to become members of the World Affairs Council. Uh, we have to pay the uh, the light bill, and now that we have an extra hand on the news review, there'll be uh, extra snacks in the uh, the break room that we have to account for. So please uh, consider becoming a member of the World Affairs Council or uh, providing a, a gift. You can do that at tnwac.org. Uh, please start adding your questions to the Q&A uh, tab in the Zoom screen uh, as you as they come to you. Uh, we will try to get them throughout the uh, the program, uh, but we can also save some for the end. Uh, that's it, uh, Dick. Do you want to uh, lead us through our topics today? Well, we got our kind of five topics today, Pat. We're going to start off with a topic that uh, I like the title of. Thucydides takes a South China Sea cruise. And Pat, will you explain all that? And then we're moving on to Russia, Vladimir the Great. Uh, Putin can serve now through 2036. Third, Russia's murder for hire program in Afghanistan. We're gonna talk about that and what's going on and why. And four, we're back to Asia with Hong Kong, the end of one city and two systems and what that bodes for the world and our relationships with China. And finally, we're gonna talk about Iran and why are there fires breaking out? What's going on there? So those are our five topics. I'm ready to go, Pat. Okay, and we're gonna start with our uh, weekly quiz question. And uh, Breck uh, was asked to do this and he's mastered the, uh, the language uh, concern. So Breck, over to you. Sure, uh, I hope so, we'll see. But I wanted to remind everyone that uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council does give a weekly quiz that you can access either on our website uh, or on our newsletter that comes out uh, on Monday. And uh, Tennessee World Affairs, World Affairs Council members uh, can compete for a monthly prize in that contest. So I encourage everybody to, to give that a look. Um, so our question for today is, uh, 20 Saudi Arabian citizens were put on trial in absentia in Turkey, July 3rd, uh, charged in the murder of what prominent reporter at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018? And the answers are A, Thumar al-Marzuki, B, Jamal Khashoggi, C, Bader al-Ibrahim, and D, Mohammed al-Sadiq. And I don't think I'll go back over those again. And we'll come, we'll have the, we'll have the answer to that at the conclusion of our uh, talk today. All right, Pat, you're gonna queue up the Thucydides takes a South China Sea cruise? I sure will. And uh, just uh, to let you know, Dick, um, we may have an audio issue here. So if I disappear from the screen momentarily, I'll uh, hand it off to you. But uh, we are certainly gonna talk about uh, what's going on in the South China Sea. Uh, there's a news peg to the story, but uh, just a, a little background on uh, what's, uh, what's for stake, up for stake uh, in the South China Sea. Um, this has been a contentious issue for decades. I, I can remember cruising in, the, in that, those waters in, in my Navy days, and uh, the Spratleys and the Paracels were being fought over, and that was in the mid-80s. Uh, so these uh, contested islands, and, and there are a number of countries 
that you can see on the screen that uh, have various claims for different parts uh, of the, uh, the South China Sea, the basin in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a strategic waterway. One third of the world's shipping passes through the uh, South China Sea and you can uh, draw a line from Singapore to the Southwest where uh, especially oil shipments come from the Middle East, but all, all sorts of uh, merchant traffic passes from Singapore through the South China Sea uh, up uh, through the Bashi Channel and then on to Korea, Japan, and so forth. So uh, one third of the world shipping through there and the, uh, the South China Sea itself is uh, a very important region uh, because of the uh, oil and gas and, and fisheries that uh, it provides there. Now China's claim, and we'll show this uh, a little bit uh, uh, more distinctly, but uh, you can see these dashed lines starting at uh, Taiwan, working down along the, the uh, coastline of uh, the Philippines. So the dashed line basically is China, who has throughout most of history not pushed itself out into these nautical areas, now has done so by basically claiming that its territorial waters go out that far to the dashed line. So um, the dashed line, Permanent Court of Arbitration in 2016 basically ruled that China has no claim. And these other countries, the Philippines, Vietnam, Taiwan, uh, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, they all have claims to various small little dinky, tiny sized land masses out there in the South China Sea that China is now building up and claiming as their own. Uh, this puts the US and China in a kind of a standoff, if not a collision course, because we believe in the freedom of navigation of the seas and wherever we can legally navigate, we plan to do so. So recently, the United States has moved a couple of aircraft carriers into some areas that are disputed by the Chinese. So the United States uh, has moved these, this carrier battle group and is conducting exercises in the area. The Chinese are reacting and saying you shouldn't be doing that. Um, the Philippines, which in recent years has been backing away from its long-term strategic relationship with the United States, has now gone back towards the United States because of their concern about what China is doing in the South China Sea. So there's a, a full discussion of this is going to come up on July the 28th at 7 p.m. with Admiral Bill Owens, who's retired and was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And the subject's going to be U.S.-China relationships. So you can go to tnwac.org and calendar and sign up to make sure you can get on that July 28th. I think we should move on to Vladimir the Great. Mark, are you up? I am up. I am up. All right. Okay. Yes. Well, the. Uh, Why is uh, he called Vladimir the Great? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure he is. Well, wasn't there an Ivan the Great? How well, long Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the. Oh. Yes, and Peter the Great. Okay. Uh, that was how it worked. But I, maybe you can call him Putin the Terrible. I don't know. Uh, in any event, uh, what we've seen is, is a recent uh, referendum on, on the constitutional amendments to 
uh, allow Putin to stay in office potentially until 2036. Now, the way it works in Russia, is, it's you know, ostensibly similar to how it works here in the US, that uh, the president is uh, allowed to have two consecutive terms. When Putin first came in, uh, he served two consecutive four-year terms, 2004, 2000 to 2004, 2004 to 2003. And then, uh, you know, despite you know, the, the calls of his henchmen to you know, amend the constitution, to let him run again, he modestly refused. And he switched with his then prime minister. Dimitri. Hello, Dick. Can you hear me? Yes. All Welcome right. back, Pat. <laughs> anyway, he switched. I think we're halfway there. I can't. Uh, I can't hear you guys. Well, Mark's. Uh, Mark's talking. Anyway, he switched with Medvedev. Uh, he became, you know, a prime minister as he was at the very end of the Yeltsin years, and Putin was president. And people at the time, I remember thought that uh, you know, Putin was doing like Deng Xiaoping. He was handing over, uh, he was handing over you know, power to the next generation. But it turned out that you know, apparently, uh, especially with regard to the, uh, the matter in Libya, uh, not vetoing the UN Security Council resolution in 2011, allowing for no-fly zone. And then of course, we all saw what happened. There was intervention and Gaddafi was overthrown, and seems to have contributed to Putin's decision to come back. Uh, and so he ran again in 2012. Only this time, the constitution had been amended to change the term of office to six years. So he was elected in 2012 and then re-elected in 2018. The idea was that 2024 he has to go, uh, but it turns out he doesn't want to go. And so the beginning of this year, they started talking about you know, certain changes, uh, but basically, he doesn't want to do what he did uh, previously with Medvedev because you know, at the six-year term to be prime minister, you know, he, he kind of likes being president. And so he, uh, you know, he got his legislature to, and his courts to approve the reset to zero uh, for his term. And then he decided to hold this uh, referendum, which he didn't necessarily have to, but uh, he, he did, and there's a whole set of things, uh, basically, you know, that there are all kinds of, you know, uh, social benefits in this and that. And not surprisingly, the referendum was passed. And so now we have the potential for Putin to stay in office till 2036. He's 67 now, which of course is not old at all. Uh, but he, if, if he does this, he'll be in power. Uh, until he is 83. And so a real question, of course, is, you know, can he actually, um, will he be able to hold out this long? Uh, will there be trouble? Um, and, and if he holds on until 2036 and dominates Russia the way he has, what it means is that he has not developed a follow-on generation of leadership. And will there be difficulties uh, when it finally comes to 2036? Or will he do the same thing again? Will he have the Constitution amended so he could stay in office even longer? God help us into his 90s. Uh, you know, I, I would be surprised if he wanted to. Anyway, it's, um, uh, it's not a happy situation for, for Russia, although obviously he, he won the vote. What it means, I think people were sort of hoping 
that you know in 2024 there really would be change finally and what's clear is that there's just not going to be all right mark hey mark i have a couple of questions if you don't oh, mind sure hey i was i was uh, uh I was wondering just how popular Putin really is in Russia. You know, the plebiscite on the term limit was 75% uh, plus. He won the 2018 election uh, overwhelmingly, not saying that it was a free or fair election necessarily. But even from an independent polling group recently, he was showing approval ratings among Russian citizens above 60%. So is that accurate? Is he still pretty popular among the Russian Russian people? Well, I think he, he is popular with a lot of people. As I recall, the latest polls where he is at, at 57%. Now, you know, in the US or elsewhere in the West, that would be really good, but it's actually lower than he's ever been at before. And the thing is, of course, is that often these polls in Russia, they're taken in person. And when you are asked whether you approve the president or not, <laughs> a lot of people feel it's prudent to say yes. Whether it's the opposite it. opposite in this country, I guess, when they do polling, huh? There you go. So um, to me, it's amazing that uh, you know that there were as many people who, who, as there were who, who did not express approval for him. So it seems that his approval is slipping. Um, and, and, and what does that mean? He's established this apparatus to thwart uh, any kind of popular protest or call for change. But of course, it all depends on his ability to keep that apparatus under control. And you know, historically, with regard to the revolution, it's, you know, the, the key element is, is not necessarily, there has to be widespread public opposition, but that's not a sufficient condition. The, the, the real key is if there is widespread popular opposition, what do the security forces do? Do they stay loyal to the regime? Do they defect? Do they try to remain neutral, whatever that means? Uh, but we've, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a, a question that I don't think Putin really wants to come up. But the thing is, the security forces are not immune to the forces affecting the rest of society as we've seen in other countries. Mm. Well, uh, I, I think uh, we will we'll be keeping our eye on, uh, on Mr. Putin. Apologies for my audio difficulties, Dick. Uh, I hope you uh, gave us a good recitation of, of the South China Sea. And well, I think you can go back and give more because you were out there actually sailing around in those waters. When well, I, was, well, I was stationed in Singapore for a while yeah. and, and uh, basically a lot of refugees were, I would go out and sail in the South China Sea and we were picking up refugees that were coming out of Vietnam at the time. So it's a beautiful body of water. And I have a question for you, if possible, about that. Sure. What are, what are, the, what are the possibilities if the Chinese you know, manage to assert control over this area because no one wants to challenge them? What are the possibilities for rerouting the sea route through the Indonesian archipelago? Is that just too complicated? Or what? What? what is, I, so I remember, you know, in '67, you know, the, the, when the Suez Canal was closed, shipping went around the Horn of Africa. They did it at, for you know for many years, uh, and I'm just wondering. It seems to me that this would be a, a shorter adjustment uh, than we saw in '67. Well, that's that's a good question. Let me uh, uh, put a, a map up here that might help. Uh, 
I think as long as you've got water, you can do that. But you're, what you're talking about is time and time equals money. Right. That's that's the uh, the major uh, issue here. And, and also just uh, freedom of navigation. The United States has long held the position that uh, freedom of navigation is is a strategic interest of the United States. And we're, we're going to stand up uh, for uh, the rights of of mariners to pass in uh, in waters, the the uh, uh, the international commons, um, without any harassment, and this uh, uh, I apologize for for dropping back, but I think it's important to see uh, what we're talking about here. A lot of traffic running from east to west through uh, the uh, Indian Ocean, the southern Bay of Bengal, through the Malacca Strait, between uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, past Singapore, where Ambassador Bowers was stationed. And then up across the South China Sea, a straight line across there, up into the Philippine Sea, and on up into Japan and, and Korea, who are major uh, importers of energy and other goods uh, from the east. Uh, there are other routes you can take, the uh, uh, Lombok Strait, for example, and a number of straits uh, through the Indonesian archipelago, but that would necessitate uh, traveling down the uh, the west southwest coast of Indonesia through those straits through the Java Sea and then up through the South China Sea. So it's it's uh, it's simply mileage and and money per mile, uh, the cost of sailing uh, very large uh, vessels and the timeliness of delivering shipments. Now what I wanted to to show uh, was what the uh, the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea. Uh, we talked about the nine dash line briefly. And uh, Dick, are we seeing that okay on the screen? Yes, we are. Okay, good. so that's the nine dash line. It's an historic marker that China has uh, hung its hat on as far as the, the South uh, China Sea claim. And you can see China, the Hainan Island is up here uh, near Hong Kong. Uh, the landmass of China uh, has no dictate on that much territorial sea claim in the South China Sea. The United States uh, recognizes uh, a 12 mile territorial limit. Uh, we claim three miles, but we also acknowledge a 200 mile economic exclusion zone uh, where people have the right, the nations have the right to control fisheries and mineral resources and so forth. Uh, but you can see that uh, that 200 mile limit would run up against the, the 200 miles that belong to Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, Brunei, um, Malaysia. Malaysia and so forth. So um, this really was a contentious issue. It went to the uh, Court of Arbitration in The Hague about four years ago. Uh, the Philippines uh, challenged uh, the Chinese claim to the, uh, uh, the Spratly Islands. And I'll, I'll illuminate some of these uh, possessions. These are outposts that uh, the Chinese have built. Uh, some of them on reefs, some of them on a, a rock that uh, at high tide is underwater. Uh, they brought in uh, uh, shipments of uh, gravel and, and turned these low-lying islands into uh, military bases. Uh, so that's that's where a lot of these outposts are. The Philippines won their claim in the court of arbitration, and the, the court said that uh, the nine-dash line is not uh, binding on anybody, uh, but China said they didn't recognize it. So they they still claim that much of the South China Sea. Let me uh, shift gears here and, and just show you a couple of, uh, of slides. These are uh, what some of these islands look like. And you can see that uh, these are little more than uh, rocks that were built up. They're reefs. Uh, a lot of these uh, 
things in the middle of the South China Sea. Um, your, sl your slide is still the map, Pat. The nine dash line, yep. No, in fact, I think, you know, the, one of the kind of funny aspects of this whole thing, there's something called the law of the sea. It's an international treaty that most of the world abides by and adheres to. The United States basically abides by it, but we have never ratified it. Uh, and under the law of the sea, if I'm remembering correctly, these little reefs and atolls cannot really be claimed as sovereign national territory. So this is... Uh, right. Uh, how, however, China is, is, uh, is claiming, claiming these and they're building them up. And you can see in some of these aerial uh, views, uh, runways, a, a lot of these uh, islands uh, and atolls and rocks that uh, have been built up. Uh, are, are now bases for uh, fighters are deployed there, uh, long-range uh, radars. Um, the, the Chinese uh, have really built these up and militarized um, the islands. Let me uh, try one more depiction here. We'll go back to the, uh, the overview. Um, Dick, are we on the screen with that? Yep. Okay, so you can see where these bases are. Now, in terms of uh, uh, securing or limiting access through the, uh, the South China Sea, uh, the Chinese have deployed uh, bomber aircraft. And you can see the range of bomber aircraft on these islands extended uh, from the mainland of China down past Indonesia. Uh, the same with uh, surface air missile sites around these islands. Uh, this uh, ring is fighter aircraft, the range uh, they could go to. And if the United States and China ever came into a conflict, uh, we would be uh, flying uh, aircraft from Guam and uh, U.S. aircraft carriers. And the extension from these islands, uh, from these bases, uh, is significant. Uh, this is a, a radar ring. This is surveillance that the Chinese now possess, uh, basically straddling the entire South China Sea. Uh, they can see everything that moves in the area. Uh, this ring is uh, the ring of anti-ship cruise missiles that uh, are based uh, on some of these islands and, and could be deployed uh, to any of them uh, that would hold uh, maritime uh, assets and navies uh, at risk. So uh, that's, uh, that's the picture of, of what China's claiming, what their capabilities are in, in the Gulf. Um, we can talk uh, quickly about uh, what the news peg is. And again, I apologize for not having that uh, slide up uh, earlier, Dick, but uh, what's happening in the um, in the region right now is that the uh, the U.S. has sailed uh, two aircraft carriers into the South China Sea, the Ronald Reagan and the Nimitz. And uh, believe it or not, the captain of the USS Nimitz is a fellow named Captain James Kirk. Uh, so you can you can let I, your uh, mind. I noticed that. <laughs> you know, like the, you can let let your mind wander with that. But this was uh, a major exercise. The Air Force uh, flew a B-52 from Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. Um, the Navy went through the Bashi Channel, which is between the Philippines and Taiwan, in, in great strength and swept ahead for submarines. Presumably, the Chinese were sending out submarines to conduct uh, reconnaissance of, of this. And uh, they had uh, kind of a fiery uh, rhetorical response from the foreign ministry uh, to the United States uh, presence in this region. They, they claim all of those islands and the territorial seas. Uh, this is nothing new though. The, the US Navy has sailed 
uh, surface ships through the what the Chinese claim are, are territorial seas uh, in what are, are called freedom of navigation operations. So that's uh, that's what's been going on uh, there in the South China Sea. And uh, we'll, so where where does it all end, Pat? I mean, the Chinese are forging ahead, building their capacity and capability. Right. You're insisting that it's not really their backyard and we want to go through it anytime we want to go through it. But somewhere down the line, somebody's going to have to do something that makes a change, right? Well, you know, the U.S. position uh, is that we uh, don't take a position on the, the claims among these uh, various countries. Uh, but that we want to see a rules-based uh, approach. And this was the language that was used back in the Obama administration when uh, these islands started to become militarized uh, back in 2014. And so uh, prior to that, it was just an annoyance that uh, there would be an outpost. And, and some of these outposts were simply a, a small structure on stilts above a rock and, you know, at, at high water, all, the, all you could see uh, were a couple of guys with binoculars living on this uh, little contraption built in the middle of nowhere. And now they're uh, major uh, And aren't some of the other countries who have counterclaims to these particular areas, aren't they sort of saying, wait a minute, I mean, I, the Philippines, for example, has put troops on some of its, its quote, islands, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's for sure. Um, this isn't happening in a vacuum. The, the other countries, Vietnam, Philippines, in particular, given their geographic position, uh, are increasingly concerned and you know they, they also have to um, balance this with the rest of their foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, China's not going away in the neighborhood and they're going to have to have uh, reasonable relations. The U.S. presence you know we've become kind of fickle in terms of um, keeping to what we say we're going to do so they've got to uh, balance their pushing the sea claims and it was kind of surprising uh, for some to see the Philippines actually take China to court and win, but yeah. China said, you know, too bad. Okay. All right, interesting. Shall Go back we, to Russia? Uh, no, wait, one last thing. What's this, what's this, who's this, who, what's his name? Thucydides? Thucydides. Thucydides trap. What is the, that all? Well, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Greek uh, wise man Thucydides set out uh, the, the proposition that uh, a rising power will be met with uh, uh, pushback from the, the dominant power. And that translates to the United States being the dominant power in the world, uh, kind of a unipolar world after the Cold War and Chinese expansion, um, economic, political, military uh, poses uh, a challenge to the dominant power. So, so uh, the city the dominant power challenge without becoming the well that's declining, that's declining uh, power? that's the trap that uh, there'll be conflict yeah. um, some people say it's not inevitable and they're betting that the uh, Thucydides uh, was wrong but you know if if these encounters that see it's been around a long time yeah and some of these encounters at sea between the US Navy and the Chinese Navy and they've also militarized their merchant marine uh, and their Coast Guard. So there's there's a lot of steel in the water floating around there that uh, there there could be a there could be an incident. You know, we had the shoot down, not the, excuse me, not the shoot down, the takedown of a U.S. Navy reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, a Chinese fighter intercepted a, a reconnaissance aircraft off the coast of Hainan Island in 2001, after the Bush administration had taken office, and uh, our uh, our airmen. Um, 
the, the, the Navy uh, crew on board were held on Hainan uh, for quite some time. They, they recovered the aircraft after the collision and successfully landed it in, uh, in Hainan, but uh, the, the Chinese held it and held the men until there were face-saving moves on both sides and we got back our people and our airplane in pieces. So, you know, things, things do go bump in the night and cause incidents. Um, we'll see what happens. But on back to Russia. Back to Russia. Dr. Mark, you, uh, what do you think, do you think that uh, Putin's gonna last that long? That, that's, a, that's a whole separate question. I mean, he is, he is mortal like the rest of us. Uh, and uh, it's just not clear. Um, it's just not clear, you know. And also, I think that uh, you know, I, I having I have a feeling at some point, you know, there are people behind him who would like his job. And I think that you know, sort of what they thought was the assurance that he'd be leaving in 2024, you know, was something that they were happy about. And now he's not. Uh, and so. Now, in a certain sense, that, that means sort of the, the next competition gets postponed. But I just have the sense that in, unless he himself develops his successor, uh, it's going to be a free-for-all. And of course, he doesn't want to develop his successor because he's afraid that person will want to come in sooner rather than later, uh, as he ended up having done. Uh, although that wasn't his so much maturation. Don't you have a situation where you know, Putin and the inner cronies and be kind of a, like a cabinet push internal kind of thing if, if something happened. But there's really, is there any effective anti-Putin opposition that's out there that could theoretically rule Russia? No. Um, yeah. I mean, there obviously there are some very bright people, but it seems to me that uh, it's more likely to be a within system transfer unless there is some you know, bizarre event that we just can't uh, foresee at the moment. Um, and, you know, that's just not, uh, you know, and, and, and such events do occur. It seems like here we are in this pandemic, which a year ago, no one would have given serious consideration. Um, black swans. That's right. There are black swans. And I, and I suspect that uh, seem to be in more in abundance anymore. And uh, there's no reason why Russia can't be subject to these as well. And in fact, the COVID-19 is hurting Russia tremendously. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not doing, they're not doing well over there either. Well, Mark, uh, we, uh, we wanted to get our money's worth out of you today. So we asked you to do two topics. So let's, let's move on to a story that's really been uh, uh, kicked around in the news here for probably about uh, 10 days. I guess it was... Uh, Weekend ago, Saturday, the New York Times came out with an article about the Russian uh, GRU and, and bounties on the U.S. troops in Afghanistan. So uh, let's, let's uh, hear what uh, your right. impression is of, of that situation. Okay. And just to remind the audience, the GRU is a Russian military intelligence. Uh, and these, uh, these reports that Russian intelligence paid bounty to the Taliban to target U.S. and coalition forces in Afghanistan seem to be you know, increasingly definitive. And that's also clear, you know, there's even been a date that's been given as to when this intelligence was actually reported uh, in the president's daily brief uh, to President Trump. 
well, it's not clear that he actually reads these. Uh, so, you know, it, it seems that this is something that, that has been happening. Uh, that, that, uh, and so, you know, uh, that just raises a lot of questions. And, and to me, the first is that why would Russian intelligence go to the trouble of paying the Taliban to do something that it's already been willing and able to do on its own? <laughs> this doesn't seem to be very cost effective. Why should they have to do it? Uh, in other words, it seems that if the Russians are doing this, there's some other, you know, motives involved. And obviously, people talk about, you know, revenge for U.S. support for the Afghan Mujahideen forces during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s. And certainly, from you know, Russian nationalist point of view, they're just doing to the Americans what the Americans had done to them, you know, back in Afghanistan. What's the difference? Uh, if you didn't like, if you didn't like it now, then why'd you do it then? Basically, there's also some thought that you know, there was this firefight in Syria between U.S. forces and the private military corporation Wagner, uh, Russian mercenaries, who apparently, you know, quite a few of them uh, were killed uh, in this firefight, uh, and that the Russian government just disavowed these people altogether but that they have they haven't forgotten some people feel that it's you know that's partly revenge for this but it strikes me that there may be some other more immediate policy uh, concerns and i think that uh, you know one is that uh, in terms of the ongoing uh, u.s taliban negotiations uh with regard to uh, you know, peace agreement in afghanistan sort of the you know, the bottom line for the u.s is that the taliban has to stop targeting you know, U.S. and coalition forces. And it strikes me that you know, the Russian bounty payments seem to be designed to, in fact, halt any progress on this uh, U.S.-led peace process. Now, why would they want to do that? You know, one possibility is that they just want the U.S. to, to leave you know, in a humiliating manner the way that the Soviets did back in 1989. That, that's a possibility. Um, it also strikes me that, uh, you know, or maybe even the Russians don't want us to leave because if, if, we, if the U.S. does leave Afghanistan, then, you know, who knows what the Taliban will do. And the trouble is that the U.S. presence in Afghanistan has actually um, been beneficial to Russian interests. In other words, that the Russian-backed governments in Central Asia, for example, uh, which had been a target of Taliban supported groups in the late 1990s. Is this going to happen again? If the U.S. is out of Afghanistan, then Russia has to deal with these security problems on its own. So one possibility, it seems to me, is that, that Russia is actually trying to undermine <laughs> the prospect of the U.S. withdrawal. Now, I don't know. It's, it's very hard to say. Uh, the other is simply that, you know, that Russia, you know, anticipating that the Taliban is going to be in power in Afghanistan, they just want to curry favor with the Taliban and to make sure that there's no rapprochement between the U.S. and the Taliban regime. In other words, that they want it to open the field for Russian influence. Now, you know, it, it's not clear to me that, that, that there's some centralized process behind this. In other words, that the GRU might uh, run rogue on its, on its own, but it's not, although it's hard to imagine. On the other hand, I guess then another question that you have to raise is, you know, how should the U.S. respond to this? And certainly some of the responses that have been talked about, you know, that 
know, we will have a, we will obviously raise this issue in talks with the Russians or we will put on sanctions, more sanctions. This is obviously not something that's going to uh, deter uh, Vladimir Putin uh, in the least. And I think you know, that there are other you know, possible, and, and, and we don't really know. In other words, it, it certainly appears in the news that the U.S. has done nothing in response that President Trump doesn't seem to even want to acknowledge that this is a problem. He's referred to it as fake news. But, you know, um, uh, maybe we're not giving him enough credit. I would imagine that the, if there's going to be a, a forceful response, it's not going to be something that's publicized and we just plain don't know uh, what that might be. But I would imagine that, um, you know, it's, it's not, obviously, it's not going to uh, improve Russian-American relations. It doesn't make the prospects for settlement in Afghanistan any stronger. And I just think that um, the U.S. has to decide. Uh, and, you know, we want to leave Afghanistan. Certainly President Trump does. Can we actually afford to? And what are the costs and benefits of staying in or, or leaving? It strikes me that um, you know, this isn't like Vietnam, but I, you know, we're living through there's huge public outcry for U.S. withdrawal from China. There's no such outcry now for withdrawing from Afghanistan. I think the public is quite comfortable with the level of commitment that, that there is, and the public would even tolerate more. This is something that President Trump in particular seems to want to do. Um, and, you know, I guess what it also shows is, it strikes me that as, as much as President Trump has sought to Either minimize the threat from Russia or to uh, indicate that he's able to, to talk with Putin better than anyone else. Obviously, Vladimir Putin has no such concern about purring in favor with Donald Trump, uh, that's for sure. Well, it's a complicated situation. Uh, Mark, thanks for laying that out for us. Uh, there's uh, the domestic side of it, you know. Who knew what, when, and why haven't we done anything? But uh, we will save that for another day and another program that is less concerned with world affairs and more concerned with the uh, Oval Office affairs. Let's uh, let's move on to uh, Dr. Breck Walker, who's going to uh, tell us uh, about uh, Hong Kong and the new security law that was passed um, in Beijing to uh, to deal with the protests and. Uh, crackdown on, on Hong Kong uh, demonstrators that came into effect. You know, we've been looking at the story for a couple of weeks now, but now it's uh, really taken effect and, and in a, a, a pretty harsh way. Uh, Breck, do you want to walk us through that? Sure. Uh, thanks, Pat. I'll, I'll scoot through this uh, uh, pretty quickly, I think. But on July the 1st, uh, the People's Republic of China imposed what most people are calling a draconian uh, national security law on Hong Kong that pervasively criminalizes uh, dissent. And uh, arguably, this is a first step in China unilaterally ending the one country, two systems agreement that China and the United Kingdom entered into back in 1997, when the UK uh, turned over its colony, Hong Kong, to uh, Chinese control and sovereignty. Now, The Economist magazine called it, quote, uh, this national security law called it quote, one of the biggest assaults on a liberal society since the Second World War. So that's uh, pretty strong. And Secretary of State uh, Pompeo tweeted, the Chinese Communist Party's draconian national security law ends free Hong Kong 
and exposes the party's greatest fear, the free will and free thinking of its own people. The United States will not stand idly by while China swallows Hong Kong into its authoritarian maw. Close quote. Now, I love that phrase, authoritarian maw. I'm going to look for chances to, to use that in the future. But uh, this law was drafted in secrecy by the Chinese administration. Uh, details were kept from Hong Kong government officials as well as the citizenry uh, throughout this whole process. At 11 p.m. on June the 30th, the day before the law was going to be uh, going into effect, was the first time that its details were revealed by uh, were revealed to anybody uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, the law has over 66 articles and more than 7,000 words, and uh, in general and broadly, it forbids acts of terrorism, subversion, secession, and collusion with foreign powers. And again. There's a very, uh, seemingly, everybody's very concerned that the Chinese will interpret those terms very broadly. And for example, the first arrest reported under this law on July the 1st was a man carrying, a Hong Kong man carrying a banner calling for an independent Hong Kong, which was behavior that was perfectly acceptable uh, on June the 30th. Uh, the sentences that can be imposed for serious violations of this law uh, will be uh, life in prison. Uh, Beijing, for the first time, uh, is going to establish its own security force in Hong Kong to enforce this law. And uh, China will also appoint uh, judges uh, to hear national security cases. And serious offenders could be extradited to China and tried in Chinese court. So examples of prohibited activity might range from carrying a sign that is critical of President Xi to damaging government buildings to occupying and sabotaging uh, transport facilities to collaborating with the NGOs that are have a presence in Hong Kong promoting democracy to forcing uh, uh, internet companies to take offending language uh, off their websites. Now interestingly to me, the law also applies to people that are not Hong Kong residents and that live outside uh, Hong Kong. So for example, uh, before we're through, when Pat criticizes something about uh, the Chinese Communist Party on this program, uh, he has violated that law. And if he ever goes to Hong Kong, he could be subject to arrest while he is, uh, is there. So the uh, overreach in this is significant. Now, let me give, if you don't mind, just a bit. Breck, I think I still have a few warrants outstanding in Hong Kong. <laughs> so let me give just a very quick uh, overview. Let me check the time. Let me give a very quick overview. No, no, you're fine. Of uh, a bare bones history of Hong Kong, just to set some context. Uh, now, again, the Hong Kong name uh, comes from a Cantonese word for uh, fragrant harbor, or some say spice harbor. But as, ever, as most everybody knows, I'm sure, it's a former British colony. It's now a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. Uh, it's a, it's a, a city nation of 7 million people and 426 square miles. So it's one of the most densely populated uh, areas uh, in the world. It's a major global financial and shipping center, uh, prospering not only from its proximity to the second largest uh, economy in the world, but also from a very free market, largely unregulated, low tax, uh, economic environment. Uh, it's ranked at the top of Heritage Foundation's Economic Freedom Index and has been for several years running. It's the 35th largest economy in the world. 
It's the top 10 nation in terms of exports and imports, and it has the second highest number of billionaires of anywhere in the world except for uh, New York City. Now, uh, quickly, Hong Kong was taken by the British authorities back in 1841 as a, as a spoil of the first opium war where Britain defeated uh, China. In uh, 1898, uh, the British, the Chinese entered into a 99-year lease covering most of what is today Hong Kong, uh, and at the end of which, 1997, Hong Kong would revert to the Chinese. In 1984, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Chinese Premier Zhao signed a joint declaration sort of describing the terms under which Britain would relinquish control, and those terms are often described as one country, two systems. And it's enshrined in what most people would call Hong Kong's constitution, which is called the Basic Law, capital B, capital L. Um, and under that law, Hong Kong's part of the PRC, but uh, the PRC controls Hong Kong's defense and foreign affairs. But uh, China agreed for 50 years from 1997 to maintain Hong Kong's uh, free social and economic system, at least compared to the mainland, and, and also protected uh, rights for freedom to speech, freedom of assembly, protection from all unlawful detention, and uh, so forth. China also promised in that basic law to promote more democracy over time, and people might argue whether they have uh, done that or not uh, through the years. But at the end of the 10th anniversary in 2007, Margaret Thatcher said publicly uh, that though she was surprised in that first 10 years, Hong Kong, I mean, that the Chinese had generally lived up to that uh, uh, basic law, but things have changed since President Xi uh, came into office. There have been increasing numbers of protests uh, in Hong Kong over the last uh, decade, and uh, particularly in 2019, when hundreds of thousands of protesters uh, uh, hit the streets over the course of several months to protest a Hong Kong Legislative Council law that was being proposed to allow extradition of certain offenders uh, in na on national security areas to China to be tried, uh, to be tried uh, there. But, uh, so the questions that I guess I have uh, are two. One is, what's going on here? And secondly, uh, what should the U.S. And its, and its allies do about it? I think it's interesting or worthy to sit there and think what the Chinese perspective is uh, on this. And my view is that the Chinese perspective probably has four or five points. Xi is definitely concerned, in, in my view, that uh, people that live in Hong Kong, as they get closer and closer to 2047, uh, will demand more and more democracy and even independence. And if they do that, uh, that will create problems domestically, perhaps, and certainly internationally, for China. Secondly, I think there are plenty of folks in Hong Kong, and she knows this, of course, that uh, think that the pro-democracy protesters have gone too, for, too far, that there are lots of business people uh, and uh, people concerned about their jobs who want a stable economic environment, and democracy is something that's down their list of priorities uh, a little bit. I think that she believes that Hong Kong, uh, these uh, democ uh, democracy protests, calls for democracy in Hong Kong, are in part supported by the West as a way to weaken the Chinese state and its authoritarian nature. And it's hard to argue that he's wrong about that. Uh, uh, so there's that. And then one thing that's not reported in the, in the Western press, now the only place I found this was on a BBC article, 
But under the basic law, Article 23 of the basic law, Hong Kong was required, agreed to enact its own national security law. And the language in that article reads very similarly to the language in the national security law that China imposed. It said Hong Kong shall enact laws on its own to prohibit any act of treason, secession, sedition, subversion, et cetera, et cetera. And Hong Kong has never enacted that law. So from Xi's perspective, again, uh, maybe Hong Kong has not, in the West, has not lived up to their understanding uh, of the basic law. And lastly, from the Chinese perspective, I guess I might argue that uh, Xi's aggressiveness here, and also in the South China Sea, and we talked last week about India, uh, may be as a result of the disarray you know, throughout much of the West, not only with COVID, but politically and President Trump uh, perhaps creating some uh, splits and alliances that haven't been there in the past and uh, bringing into question the U.S. reliability as an ally and those kinds of things. And I think she probably thinks if I'm going to be aggressive, now's a very good time to be aggressive. But on this last, uh, it creates perhaps a, a dangerous situation and makes very important how the U.S. reacts to this because now it's Hong Kong and there's not much to be done, I would argue, about this. But the next step is Taiwan. And while we don't have a formal treaty with Taiwan, we certainly have an informal treaty and American credibility would be hugely at stake if China did anything forcefully there. And uh, I, I think that that's now a little bit more in play as a result of what happened in Hong Kong than it might have been uh, a year ago. So what do we do about it? The uh, President Trump has thought we'll put some visa restrictions on Chinese officials. We'll restrict some air exports that might otherwise go to Hong Kong. We might take away their most favored nation status. We might get fa fast immigration to really talented Hong Kongers that we'd like to have in the US. But as a practical matter, it seems to me that there's not a whole lot that we can do that's gonna impact Chinese behavior because the West is gonna be very concerned about hurting its economic relationships with China. And they're certainly gonna be reluctant to wanna to provoke a conflict of any kind over a national security law. So in my mind, at a minimum, what we need to do is get together with our allies, decide what our red lines are with regard to Chinese behavior, and then, and those red lines may be no more rewriting the basic law. They may be, you know, don't do anything with regard to Taiwan. And then those red lines need to be communicated, in my view, quietly to the Chinese government so everybody knows where they stand uh, on this. And uh, Kissinger said, one quick quote, uh, Kissinger quote, Kissinger said, quote, the art of crisis management is to raise the stakes to where the adversary will not follow, but in a manner that avoids a tit for tat. Uh, I think that's a, a, a great quote, and I'm just not sure we have had or have currently or will have a presidential administration that can pull that off. But uh, anyway, so Pat, that's it for China. And well, well done. Thanks. Thanks, Brick. Dick, Dick, last week when he did uh, India-China, he left with the two questions and dumped it on our laps. This week, he had, he had the, <laughs> the good taste to answer his own questions. We, well, we I, do, think I agree with him. I mean, either, what, no, that was, what is that there was, that you can do? I mean, maybe you can find, find some empty space somewhere and move everybody from Hong Kong to it, right? And then well, the British, the British have opened up uh, slots for 3 million well, people. That's right. So, uh, you know, we, we hopefully are talking with the British. No, Hong Kong, I was there about three or four years ago, and it, it's a beautiful island, and it's a vibrant, exciting place. And of course, the food is beyond, 
you're pale, man. Well, and, and the whole business. Uh, business, it's just vibrant. It's been free, yeah. whatever you can say about it. It's a wonderful place. So it's a different chapter for, for uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, but I think it's, uh, it's over. And, you know, you're one of your, your good yeah. sources that I know you read a lot because it talks about the Navy a lot in the South China Sea, the uh, Morning Post, right? And right. What, what it, it's the, the newspaper of record for Hong Kong. Yep. And it's kind of like the New York Times. What's, what's this new law mean in terms of what they can report and how they report it? You know, a lot, a lot of, of a lot of times that the uh, the the dis, uh, dissent is already being uh, quashed uh, as of the first of July. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, journalists see and, and make their own red lines without uh, dictation from uh, from higher authorities. So they may self muzzle. You never know because um, this this new law has has some really biting uh, penalties. Uh, Breck, yeah. that was that was a great. Uh, layout of what's going on there I, uh, now that you're becoming a, a sino uh, analyst uh, <laughs> <laughs> um your your friend uh, dr thomas schwartz has a question and um, you you brought up kissinger, you brought up kissinger and, and he has a, a book coming out in september on uh, on secretary kissinger that we're all waiting to read and, uh, and, and Professor Schwartz asks, should the United States consider changing its official policy on Taiwan or give Taiwan more secure protection and recognition? I'll, I'll let you take a bite out of that one. Well, that would certainly be uh, drawing a red line. Uh, and uh, maybe that is the, oh, something like that is the only way to rein in, to possibly rein in Chinese uh, aggression. Uh, but I'm curious what you guys think as well. Well, we already have uh, kind of an ambiguous mutual defense pact with Taiwan. We sell them arms, and we've uh, warned uh, China, not Beijing, not to uh, uh, make a forcible uh, return of uh, Taiwan, which which we acknowledge is is a part of China. Um, so I'm not sure how much more secure protection recognition that we could provide. I, I suppose you know we we could recognize them. As a, as a sovereign state, and that would be beyond a Beijing red line. They've said even even political parties in Taiwan talking about independence, that's uh, a bridge too far. So um, we're gonna have Thomas Schwartz on here next week, we'll ask him. <laughs> All right. I think well, you're right though, Pat. I mean, we've had a relationship with, uh, with Taiwan ever since they left the mainland back in 48. And, oh, sure. We've built their military prowess. It would, you know, Singapore had a doctrine. They wanted to be the poison shrimp. They realized they couldn't stand up to China or to some of the other powers in the area. But if they were poison enough, even if they were just a little teeny shrimp, maybe the big guys would be, you know, stay away from them. So Taiwan has an effective military capability. Um, we have basically abandoned them internationally. We've supported a lot of their embassy activity around the world. And, and the recognition of China sort of torpedoed that. So they're going to sit where they're going to sit. And I, I think it's just going to drag on like it is. I, I don't see a military solution to the, to the matter. And the economy and the ability of the Taiwanese to take care of themselves are going to keep growing, it seems to me. Right. 
Well, we have uh, one more question on uh, the China situation from uh, James Akinson, who, uh, if it's the same James that I know, is a professor at Tennessee Tech University. Uh, he's been a great friend of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And James uh, asks, how does the earlier history of Kamoi and Matsu uh, influence all of this South China Sea's behavior? And uh, those of us uh, I may not have lived through that history. That was the mid fifties. Uh, I was a little young at, at that point, but uh, basically a, a, a territorial conflict after um, the nationalist forces retreated to Taiwan, there was still a battle going back and forth shelling. And uh, it, it was really a mess. And the United States stepped in and got involved in the Kumori uh, and Matsu uh, situation. I think, uh, from from my perspective, I think we're in a different era now. Uh, China has built a formidable uh, PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and it's the PLA and the Navy and and so forth. But uh, uh, it's it's a different uh, different uh, ball game in terms of uh, Chinese military strength. Uh, it's their neck of the woods. Uh, back in the 50s, the United States was the dominant power in the world. We still had thousands of ships, uh, many of them still in the Pacific, uh, and China was, wasn't was uh, uh, spoiling for a, a big fight with us then. Now, the South China Sea, I'm not sure if anybody's spoiling for a big fight, but we're certainly up against the conditions that could make it easy to get there. Two, uh, you know, let's get back to the Cydides. Um, you know, he's he's wandering around this around the South China Sea, and we've we've gotten into shooting wars on on simpler things. So uh, I, I wouldn't draw a straight line from uh, the Taiwan Strait issue of the fifties to the South China Sea. Breck, you you got a notion on that? No, I agree with you. I think China's in a much more powerful, influential position militarily and economically than. You know, it's night and day, and uh, they have a lot more uh, muscle than they used to. For sure. All right, let's uh, see if I can get into a, another topic here without my audio going out. Uh, this, and we'll <laughs> run through this uh, pretty uh, pretty quickly here, uh, is the story about uh, Iran and recent uh, things going bang and boom in the night. Uh, but uh, before we get into the, the news story here, let's just uh, bring people up to date with the background um, of the, uh, the U.S. maximum pressure campaign and the Iranian maximum resistance. Uh, you'll recall in 2015, after a couple of years of negotiations, the P5 plus one, that's the permanent five members of the uh, uh, U.N. Security Council uh, plus Germany, and the EU was in there as well, but they didn't get a number. Uh, they signed a, an agreement in Geneva with Iran. Uh, it's more properly known as the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, but it's the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And that was signed during the Obama administration and provided for uh, Iran to take certain steps, uh, forswearing forever that they would not build nuclear weapons. And uh, there, were, there were some sunrise provisions on things like uh, an arms uh, uh, trading agreement that expires in the fall, which is another contentious issue. But uh, the amount of fissile material they could uh, develop, uh, there was some uh, extraction of, of uh, nuclear materials from the country of Iran as part of the agreement. So this was really a, a major milestone in uh, nuclear uh, 
uh, disarmament uh, to prevent Iran from uh, getting a nuclear weapon. And uh, you also may recall that in 2018, uh, President Trump announced that uh, the United States would withdraw from the JCPOA, which was one of his campaign promises. Uh, he said it was the, the worst deal ever made and that he would negotiate a, a better deal. So the uh, P5 plus one, uh, the Europeans in the P5 plus one remain committed to the deal as did the, uh, the Russian Federation and China, uh, which were part of the P5. Uh, the EU and the US got uh, loggerheads over the JCPOA going away. Uh, the Europeans wanted to continue doing business with Iran, uh, oil sales and so forth. Uh, but the United States had reinstituted sanctions. So that, that's been going back and forth. It's uh, somewhat damaged EU-US relations. In fact, the European Union has gone so far as to try to develop uh, a system to counter the international currency exchange using US dollars so that they could trade, their uh, businesses could trade with, uh, with Iran. So anyway, in, uh, in May of last year, the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, which was charged with uh, monitoring Iranian compliance with the JCPOA. And there'll be a test at the end here of all these acronyms. <laughs> um, whether they were abiding by the, the terms of the deal and, and concluded and the US government agreed uh, that the Iran was complying. But then over the summer, uh, the Iranian leadership decided that they were going to breach the limit on the stockpile of uh, uranium. So they technically uh, left uh, compliance with the amount of fissile material uh, or, excuse me, enriched material uh, that they uh, could possess. So uh, here's a, a, a quick snapshot of uh, Iran's nuclear facilities. You can see they're spread out all over the country uh, from, from the west, uh, the central part of the country to the far west. And, and Iran is a pretty substantial size uh, country. And people are always talking about, well, why don't we just attack the facilities, um, et cetera. So these are facilities that are spread out uh, from a military uh, planning perspective. A lot of what they've developed is uh, buried deep underground. And this facility at Natanz, uh, what uh, erupted in fire last week on Thursday, and you can see the overhead, the uh, satellite imagery of of the building before on the right and the building after the fire. And this was apparently a factory manufacturing centrifuges. Now centrifuges are a key element to Iran's enrichment of uranium. And when they achieve a certain level of enrichment, uh, they can use the, uh, the material in the nuclear power plants and they, uh, their position is that's what they are wanting enriched uranium for. They have um, a nuclear power plant at Bushir on the, the Persian Gulf Coast. Uh, but if you continue to enrich uranium to a higher uh, degree of enrichment, uh, you can produce fissile material that could go into a, uh, uh, an atomic bomb. So um, the, uh, the news peg here is last Thursday, a, a fire erupted at, uh, at Natanz, which was uh, one of their major uh, facilities for enriching uranium. And at Natanz, uh, uh, there was a fire in the shed. Uh, there were also uh, some other uh, incidents in uh, various parts of the country. Uh, a chemical plant, um, a fire broke out at a power station in southwestern 
Iran. It was a chlorine gas leak at the petrochemical plant near the port of Bandar Khomeini. Um, the head of uh, Iran civil defense suspects that uh, some of these may have been related to a, a cyber attack. Uh, and, and Dick, you, you asked earlier about Stuxnet, which was a computer virus that was uh, inserted into um, the uh, Iranian computer system that run, ran their centrifuges. And their centrifuges were uh, run into overdrive and many of them burned up. So there's a history of uh, foreigners getting viruses into Iranian cyber systems. And that's the uh, first suspicion uh, on the part of Iran uh, as, as being behind these incidents. So Iran is uh, uh, up in arms. They're threatening response. Um, they, were, they already have been threatening unconditional responses in the wake of the killing of General uh, Soleimani in January. And uh, we'll see uh, what comes of, of that. So we're at loggerheads again with Iran. It's always an explosive situation in the Gulf. Uh, the US Navy's fifth fleet is in the Gulf. Iran patrols the Strait of Hormuz. So uh, as in the case of the South China Sea, actually uh, exponentially more uh, likely to, to be a, a fire starter. Uh, we're again uh, looking at uh, uh, a decline in the security situation vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Mm. So that's where we are with uh, things starting on fire and blowing up in Iran. Um, I think we've answered the, all the questions that have been posed to us. Anybody uh, have closing comments? We ran a little long. Apologies for uh, audio difficulties. I now know uh, how long AirPods batteries uh, work and, <laughs> and we'll uh, take remedial action uh, for, for future uh, webinars. Um, I'll just mention that we had a terrific webinar today with the uh, Lord Mayor of Belfast, uh, with Carl Dean uh, in his uh, webinar that the World Affairs Council uh, produces, uh, Global National with Carl Dean. We talked with the, uh, the Lord Mayor about uh, what's going on in Belfast, which is a sister city to Nashville. So please check that out. It'll be in the archive uh, by tomorrow, if not sooner. And uh, you can find all of our webinars. And I think, uh, Dick, we've got, what, about uh, 3,000 hours of webinars? Uh, more, more than I'm going to watch in a, in a <laughs> Netflix binge, I'll tell you. <laughs> but uh, you, can, you can find all those materials on youtube.com slash TNWAC. Uh, there's, uh, we've, we've been fortunate in having uh, terrific guests um, and uh, you can find all that uh, on the website. Speaking of terrific guests, uh, Dr. Mark Katz, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we, we really appreciated uh, you coming in from, uh, flying in from uh, Northern Virginia. Are, are you a Annandale, uh, Fairfax guy? Yeah, Oakton, Virginia. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us and lending your expertise to our, our humble show. Uh, for anybody who wants to follow uh, Mark, uh, we will have links on the website uh, by tomorrow with uh, his tremendous articles. And you have uh, a personal website, and then you have something called Cat's Eye Review. Cat's Eye View, yeah. Cat's Eye View. Uh, that's my blog, yeah. Okay. You can find it on my, on my uh, www.markncats.com. Mark, MarkNCats.com. So you can find uh, his writings, and you're, you're a prolific guy. I'm, I'm seeing postings on Facebook every every other day of, of, of a new article. Um, <laughs> it's it's all good stuff. And Breck, welcome to the uh, the gang. Um, 
we'll uh, we'll make t-shirts or something the uh, well thanks for having me i'm uh, delighted to be here you need you need to answer the question so we can get out of here <laughs> oh okay. oh yeah yeah how about that what's okay. the question and who was the guy now the question is again 20 saudi arabian citizens were put on trial in absentia in turkey july 3rd charged in the murder of what prominent reporter at the saudi consulate in istanbul in 2018 and the answer is b jamal khashoggi correct all right and uh, there he is on your screen and uh it was a pretty horrific event and turkey is playing a little politics uh, with it but uh we'll see what happens and, and a lot of people think that it it goes higher up in the chain of command in Saudi Arabia than is currently being called to account. Uh, but but history will will decide on that. It doesn't look like any uh, anybody is forcing the issue. Uh, well, Dick, Breck, Mark, just wanna say thank you, Mark. He's been on the shelf keeping his eye on me back. All right, then. thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, again, uh, thanks, everybody, uh, for coming and spending time. Uh, we hope uh, you're smarter for the hour that uh, you've been with us. We uh, appreciate uh, everybody joining us. Again, please consider becoming a member of the World Affairs Council. And that's, that's it for today. Thank you, everybody. Please be thanks safe. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.